The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. China is a nation of contradictions. It is a developing economy that is an economic powerhouse. It is a rising power that is already a great power. It is a communist country that has embraced capitalism. The dualism of the yin and yang is not simply an element of Chinese philosophy. It is a source of modern Chinese identity. This is part two of Liberalism, Capitalism, Communism about the global ascendance of China. Last week was about liberal internationalism. Next week, we'll focus on the global influence of the Chinese Communist Party. So part one was about liberalism. Part three will be about communism. This is part two, but it is not about capitalism. This week, we'll explore how China's different sources of identity shape its foreign policy. It is about how an illiberal state adapts to a liberal world order. I want to convey the nuance and complexity of modern China as it exists today. So this week is not so much about capitalism, but the juxtaposition of capitalism and communism. It is about the reconciliation of its many contradictions, and it is about the challenges for China to continue to evolve and transform. The contradictions and complexities intrinsic to Chinese identity are present in its foreign policy. Zhao Yupu writes, China's grand strategy has no coherent blueprint, and there are competing visions for its emerging roles on the world stage. This is not to argue that Beijing has no grand strategy, but rather that Beijing's grand strategy includes contradictory elements. Zhao Yu is an associate professor of political science at the University of Nevada, Reno, and the author of Rebranding China, Contested Status Signaling in the Changing Global Order. There is a lot to worry about. China's global ascendance. But Zhao Yu believes much of the alarm is overblown. L let me restate that. He does not believe there is no cause for concern. But he does offer an alternative perspective. Our conversation explores topics as diverse as the domestic politics in China to an analysis of its use of sharp power. We discuss not just China's prospects for democratization, but whether China must democratize 
to become a dominant hegemonic power. There is so much to cover here. So this is my conversation with Zhao Yu Pu. Zhao Yu Pu, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I loved your book. It's, it's very different than some of the other pieces that I've read on China. Your book is called Rebranding China. Can you explain what does China want its brand to be? Yeah, to some degree, my answer is that what China wants to be, the idea in contrast to some of the popular narrative in the United States, okay, China wants to dominate the world. China wants to become new hegemonic power. My answer is even the Chinese, they don't know. At least this, the, the whole idea of what China wants to be is still contested, both in China and abroad internationally. And also there are some ideas, like China wants to become, become a stronger uh, nation and China wants to be one of the co-leaders and maybe one of the great powers in the international system. But also China does not abandon its developing country status. So there, I, my overall answer to your first question is that even rebranding China, I'm talking about the process is still contested. I'm not talking about rebranded China. So in a sense that the idea of rebranding China is still contested. What the ideal images or identity China wants to project on the global stage is still pretty much, pretty much subject to debate and discussion. Now, some people have often said, or sometimes said, that the advantage China has is that it doesn't have to listen to its own people because it's authoritarian, so it can just do what it wants to be able to do. You have a different, more nuanced view of China, where the domestic politics, the views of people in China do have some influence on how China directs its foreign policy. Can you explain a little how an authoritarian country like China that's mm. non-democratic can be influenced by public opinion or at least the public in general? Yeah, good questions. This related to a political science concept called the legitimacy. So any political system, no matter it's democratic or authoritarian system, the rulers or the government needs to maintain some sort of basic legitimacy, which means the rightful authority to rule. So in, in Western democracy, the most important sources of democ uh, legitimacy is democratic election. In China, the Chinese Communist parties, they don't have this kind of similar sort of competitive elections, but the Communist Party of China, they still need to maintain some sort of legitimacy within the Chinese sort of uh, society, Chinese uh, system. So m many scholars would argue that the Chinese Communist Party rely upon two major sources. One is economic growth. Some people also call that performance legitimacy. They need to improve people's living standard. The other important dimension is nationalism or nationalist credential in a sense that they need to justify the Chinese government is defending sort of the national honor status of the Chinese nation. So how they, how they, they do that, the Chinese people still have some voices because if a politicians are extremely sort of unpopular, they will be heavily criticized by the Chinese people. 
And there's some supervision mechanism. So if politicians doing something like extremely unpopular, that will invite public opinion backlash. Then the politicians might be removed. So at grassroots level, there are some sort of democratic system that is limited. At a higher level, politicians typically would care about their public image. As I said, if they are doing something extremely unpopular, potentially they might be removed by by their leaders. And also, of course, for Xi Jinping, he he cares about the overall sort of legitimacy of CCP because if he damages legitimacy, that will damage the overall sort of continuity of his political system. So there's all kinds of important nuanced mechanisms to make some politicians to some degree accountable for public opinion. In your book, you explain nationalism being one of the main sources of legitimacy, that mm. Chinese politicians use nationalism to be able to gain that public support. Mm. Is that something that Americans should be reassured that the Chinese people are involved in some way in the political process? Or is that something that should concern Americans that nationalism plays such a large role in Chinese politics? Mm. Okay, very good question. I think from America's perspective, if we think about Chinese legitimacies largely rely upon nationalism, it's a mixed news for American policymakers, American public. On the one hand, I think some of the narrative talking about, okay, Chinese Communist Party, they will spread communism, damage America's of capitalism or democracy. That's a little bit wrong. I think, I mean, the Chinese Communist Party are much more nationalistic rather than really communism. So I think some of the sort of concerns about Chinese government spreading communism, that's definitely overblown. So, but on the other hand, nationalism might also generate some for American policymakers because people worry if China's economic, economic growth is slowing down, Maybe Chinese leaders increasingly rely upon nationalism as legitimacy sources. That means Chinese leaders might take a much tougher position regarding Taiwan, South China Sea, and other issues in East Asia. That will potentially entrap America into some of the conflicts or at least tensions in, in East Asia. So I think the fact that nationalism plays such an important role in Chinese political system Actually, it's a mixed news for American policymakers and American public. Let's touch on the part you kind of mentioned about communism being overblown. Xi Jinping has emphasized Marxism yet again. He says Marx is a huge influence in terms of his political thought. But China doesn't necessarily operate as a communist country or doesn't seem to have communist objectives um, in terms of its economic policy today, even though they do have a wide range of state-owned enterprises. Can you explain the role of Marxism then in today's China? Does it have influence still? Is that just lip service or is that real? Good, Good point. I think this is still subject to some debate. So my own judgment is Marxism in China or communist legacy Marxism ideology their impact uh, in China uh, is in terms of degree. It's not a zero or 100%. It's some, somewhere between. 
I think uh, Marxism is still one of the sort of political ideas and, and still shape Chinese politics to some degree, but it does not impact daily policymaking, especially regarding economic policy, some most of the social policy. If we, if we think about the income gap, I mean, China's income gap is much wider than some of the Western industrial capitalist societies. So there are so many billionaires. I mean, even those billionaires are Communist Party members. So if you, if you think about the Marxist and also for Chinese officials, their priority often are trying to try to like generate economic growth. If any foreign foreign visitors visit China, many of the Chinese officials, their priorities try to persuade international visitors to invest in their regions uh, to boost their economic growth. So it's that's really not a Marxist officials really dominated by Marxist ideas. But I think to some degree for Chinese leaders, they still need to try to justify their political system. So in a sense that their ruling party, it's called the Communist Party. So I think Marxism is still part of the sort of official discourse, trying to justify the existence of the current political system. That's it. Marxism fundamentally impact China's sort of economic policy. They're, they're thinking with the outside world. I, I don't think so. But I think it's still part of the ideologies to just justify the current political system. Uh, Your subtitle is Contested Status Signaling in the Changing Global Order. You include a sense of of what you describe as status signaling into international relations and foreign policy. Mm-hmm. A quote from your book that I think kind of brings it together is you say status signaling is a multi-level game with the state's leadership pivoting between domestic and several international audiences. This is part of the reason why I jumped into domestic policy to get some of your ideas behind that. But mm-hmm. let's take a step back. Can you just, can you simply explain what what you mean by status signals, and maybe a little bit about how these different levels interact with one another. Very simple. Status means some sort of a position in any social pecking order or in any social order. Individually, uh, people care about their social ranking, right? Academic world or military world or even business world. People have different rankings. So in, in a hierarchical social order, you are assist, assistant professor or full professor, that's different ranking. I argue that nation states, countries also care about their preferred ranking in the international system or in, in the international society. Status signals or status signaling means that their governments would pursue variety of projects to project their preferred ranking in the international system. Either it's a superpower, great power, regional power, developing countries. There are different rankings, different uh, sort of status in the international system. So nation states and their governments try to project an image of different ranking in the international order. So that's a status signal or status signaling. Do you have an example where it can show how this comes to life? So, for instance, I argue that China or the Chinese government or the Chinese leaders, they are facing multiple audiences, domestic audience, regional audience in East Asia, and the global South, that's those developing countries and the global North, uh, that, that or the West, so that the United States, the Europe. So China has multiple 
identities or different types of status as well. China is a rising power, one of the great powers, but also it's still a developing country. So what we see right now is that the Chinese leaders, sometimes in front of domestic audience, they highlight even exaggerated China's rising power status. So sometimes highlight, oh, China's like is building aircraft carriers, is celebrating sort of a huge achievement. So even the Chinese leaders, their purpose to, to highlight China's international achievement in front of domestic audience, but the international audiences are also receiving this kind of image. That might potentially generate some backlash. That's one example. The other example is that on the other time, the Chinese leaders, they emphasize China still a developing country. Chinese leaders, they have multiple sort of instrumental calculations why they try to emphasize China's developing country status. Why is that they try to shirk from taking greater responsibilities and to consolidate solidarity with other developing countries. But in front of the Western leaders, like American president, European leaders, they don't buy the argument that China's still developing country. They say, oh, China, you are already number two. You are such a huge developed economy. Why you are still a developing country? So this gives you a sense that sometimes Chinese leaders emphasize China's developing country status in front of developing com- other developing countries, but other Western leaders might not buy that kind of argument. Other times, Chinese leaders emphasize China is a rising power, great powers, maybe their target audience is domestic audience, but the international audience also receiving those kind of information that generated some backlash or pushback. So that's, it's a complicated story. Sometimes China feels to me like a square peg trying to fit into a round hole in terms (laughs) of the international order. I just had on uh, John Eikenberry last week talking about the international liberal order. Mm -hmm. China's not what any scholars, I don't think, would describe as a liberal nation. Mm-hmm. Of course, when the United States came into its own role in terms of being a global superpower, um, you had more of an, an imperial uh, world order led mm-hmm. by Great Britain, who had an empire. So oftentimes, as you have rising powers, the international world order will change to be able to fit in them, especially if they become hegemonic. I'm not saying China's going to displace the United States at this point, but what I'd like to know is how would China like to change the world order as mm-hmm. it continues to rise? Is it trying to reshape it away from being the liberal world order, or is it more or less generally accepting of the world order the way the United States has shaped it so far? I think when we when we talk about liberal order, liberal international order, frequently, I think, makes different dimensions of liberal international order. Sometimes we mean liberal, liberal international order, we really mean like international organizations, institutions, multilateralism, these United Nations at the, at the core institution to defend sort of multilateral liberal order. Other time we talk about liberal international order, we are really talking about some of the domestic values, human rights, respect for democracy, rule of law, liberties, whether a countries respect some of the domestic sort of like liberal values, practice liberal values. I think China's overall relationship with liberal international order is that on the one hand, thinking about multilateralism, 
global uh, international institutions, especially United Nations. China is a status quo power. China does not want to fundamentally change United Nations. China does not want to fundamentally change most of international institutions. China is already a key member in most sort of global institutions from United Nations, WTO, I mean, WHO, and so, so many. So if we think about, if we conceptualize liberal international order primarily as multilateral, institutional-based order, China is largely still a status quo power. On the other hand, if we think about liberal international order also means promotion or defending sort of domestic liberal values, I think China at least posed some limited challenges. People are still scholars now still debating whether China's long-term goal is to make sort of like a, their own authoritarian system more accepted. So in a sense that trying to make their own sort of, sort of illiberal domestic political system to some degree accepted in the international system, or their long-term goal is really to sort of remake the world on their own image. My own personal observation is that I think it's still far away from like remaking the whole world on its own image. So I think the priority probably is still to try to sell China's political system as sort of one of the political systems that have been recognized as legitimate. It's not trying to remake the other countries' political systems. In that sense, it's very different from the Soviet Union. But on the other hand, given China also expand its economic influence, even China's goal is limited. But the effects could be wide, could far beyond China's own border. So many countries have economic connections with China. So if they consider China's political system as largely legitimate, then that have huge implications. My own judgment is that on the second dimensions of liberal order, China posed some limited challenges. Their goal is limited, but in fact, already go beyond China's borders. I, I want to double down a little bit on this question. Mm. In terms of the first aspect, its role in terms of international institutions specifically. Mm. I, I don't want to worry about the liberal values domestically, okay. except in terms of the concept of rule of law. Francis Fukuyama describes China as being governed by a rule by law rather than rule mm-hmm. of law. But it seems that to truly participate in international law in terms of the, the liberal international order, the way Eikenberry describes it, it helps to have a, a nation state that believes and, and has a tradition of the rule of law within its country. But to be able to do that, in some ways, you kind of have to incorporate some liberal values mm-hmm. within within your country, I mean, to, to truly establish a rule, rule of law. Is there going to be an issue with China being able to adapt to international institutions long term because of its inconsistencies to the concept of rule of law? Yeah, good question. The real question is domestic rule of law versus international rule of law. Domestic democracy versus sort of international multilateralism or democracy. Uh, I think the scholars even today are still debating whether there is a clear sort of correlation. Think about the United States, probably one of the 
most important countries that really have a high degree of rule of law. I mean, even people debate about like, there are some problems, democratic processes, but overall, most people would agree that the United States rule of law probably is a very defining features of American domestic political system. But the international relations scholars, even today, they're debating to what degree the United States, a lot of practice, foreign policy, really respect international law. Because think about the Bush administration, new conservatives, the Iraq war, some of the American commentator strategies, they argue that the United States is a hegemonic power, is a superpower. It makes no sense for the United States, at least for some issues, to respect international law because the U.S. is the sort of like the leading power. So in that track record, I think there's not necessarily when people say, oh, if we want to have an international legal order, we need to have so, sort of like a dom- the domestic rule of law directly contribute to that. I think on the other hand, I think the way China tried to encourage China to be a more sort of socialized into the international legal system, we really sort of like expect China should have like a perfect or, or even more advanced rule of domestic. I think they don't necessarily have always have co- correlation, but it helped if China further improve their domestic rule of law, maybe even have more democracy, maybe China will be a more, even more sort of operative actor in international legal system. But I, I again, it's not always the correlation. Maybe some people argue that maybe if China become a democratic country, maybe the policy making is more driven by popularism, nationalism. Maybe China will act even disregard international law. That's another direct possibility at least. So in summary, it's there is no clear correlation between domestic rule of law and international rule of law. I'm curious to get your thoughts on democratization within China then, since we kind of touched on that in your last answer. There's a theme that China's traditions don't align with democratic values. But when you actually look at East Asia, it's surrounded by democracies. Mm-hmm. It's got Japan, Taiwan, South Korea. Uh-huh. There are a lot of really strong democracies in Asia. Uh-huh. I've got two questions. One is, do you believe that it's possible for China to make a transition to democracy at all? Mm-hmm. And two, I want to know, is it necessary for China to democratize, to have legitimacy if it was to become a hegemonic power? Mm. Okay, very good. Two great questions. So each we can talk a lot, but I, very briefly, I think that for China to, to transform into a democracy or liberal democracy, I think the possibility is still there. But I, I think that it, it's more an open-ended question, uh, to be honest. Uh, for almost 10 years in my Chinese politics class, I always assigned this as a debatable question to my students. So every semester for my, in my Chinese politics class, I always ask students to debate about this. So I think there are some factors that might potentially contribute to China's future democratic transition. In a sense that number one, in many countries, when a country become richer, there are expanding middle class, they, have, they, they want more uh, rights. So I think uh, there are some sort of uh, contributing factors to China's future democracy. And also some, some people even argue, I largely agree, even China's overall political system is not like a liberal democracy, but there are still some sort of democratic elements 
even, even within this overall authoritarian system. So there is some sort of grassroots democracy in China. Uh, within the government system, overall, it's not a competitive elective system, but there's some check and balance. Uh, there's some sort of mechanism make government officials accountable. So in a sense that even overall, it's still not a democratic system, but there are some democratic elements there. Of course, in recent uh, years, Xi Jinping has tightening control, his personal sort of authority, Chinese Communist Party tightening control. But uh, some other scholars also argue that before South Korea transformed into liberal democracy, their political social situation was very similar to today's China. So who knows? I think first question is, I think this is open-ended question. There are some factors contribute to China's future long-term democratic transition. There are some other factors maybe would suggest the current authoritarian system might be sustainable or resilient, at least in the foreseeable future. The second is whether China must become a liberal democracy if, if they really want, has the intention or has any chance to become a new hegemonic power. My answer is absolutely yes. So in a sense that the conventional wisdom always emphasizes hegemonic system, emphasizes too much of the material capabilities, like economic power, military power. But uh, some other scholars argue that any hegemonic system, they need both material foundation and ideological foundation. In a sense that if China wants to be uh, like a more important global leader, China must provide a more sort of opinion ideology that attract a lot of followers in the international system. But right now, most existing great powers, most of them are, are largely sort of liberal democracies. So in that sense, if China would not sort of transform, ultimately transform into a liberal democracy, even China become the largest economy, China will face huge political backlash and pushback from the international system. So in that sense, there will still be a huge gap between China's material capabilities and China's ideological appeal. Right now, I think, as I mentioned, China's ideology is primarily rely upon nationalism, but nationalism is not an opinion ideology to other countries. Each country has their own version of nationalism, right? If, if Xi Jinping wants to put the Chinese dream as China's like dominant sort of ideology, that's fine for the Chinese, but that's not an attractive ideology for Americans, Europeans, and, and Brazilians. So I think if Xi Jinping wants to become a global leader, China wants to be a global leader, the, their ideology must be more compatible with the dominant ideology of the international system. That's, I think that's a still huge gap between China and the sort of international mainstream to some degree. Now, recently, actually not even recently, it's been a few years now, Christopher Walker over at National Endowment of Democracy has come up with a concept called shock uh -huh. power that he refers directly to Russia and China where instead of a soft power, where it's a cultural influence that isn't mm -hmm. orchestrated or, or directed, China tries to take cultural influences mm -hmm. 
and use a much more direct policy intention behind it. Larry Diamond mm-hmm. recently wrote a book called Ill Winds, where he referred to both Russia, who the United States is familiar with, thinking about as, as having ill intentions, mm-hmm. but also China. I, I can give out numerous examples that that they mm-hmm. refer to, but why is it that China sometimes creates policies that would fall under this sharp power that seem to undermine its legitimacy? Is it mm-hmm. because the Communist Party in China, the CCP, is is just not experienced enough with with exercising its weight? Or is it because they are trying to extend their power dramatically? How would you describe okay. that? Yeah, I think I, I noticed uh, the sort of rising concerns of this notion of sharp power from China or Russia and other uh, other countries. But I also think there's some sort of analytic confusions related to this concept, because we need to be to be careful, carefully differentiate among different kinds of Chinese influence. Two extreme examples. If, if Chinese government, Chinese leaders, Chinese diplomats wants to censor public opinion in American universities and other Western universities, that will be extremely bad. That will generate a backlash. That is illegitimate. That's really bad. But if, if China wants to provide more peacekeeping forces to, to the United Nations, China want to donate more money to maybe some charities in Africa or something like that. That's positive inference. So I think nowadays in some of the international media or think tank reports sometimes confuse legitimate inference with illegitimate inference. So it looks like every aspect of Chinese inference from Western government's perspective need to push back. I think that that's a little bit sort of, again, a little bit overblown. Even sharp power, I think sometimes many examples might be good examples of illegitimate activities, but also some examples look like very similar to many other countries try to promote their language, culture. I mean, all country wants to project some sort of positive image of their nation, their tradition, their language. So I think we need to be careful in a sense that a careful differentiate different types of uh, Chinese influence, positive or negative, legitimate or illegitimate. So that's number one. So number two, my my comments regarding the shop power is that my own analysis is that this looks like very similar to what my book argue is that sometimes Chinese officials, Diplomats, their practice probably only work in within China's domestic audience, in front of China's domestic audience, Chinese society. But as they practice some of those internationally, where norms and ideas practice are very different from China's domestic context, that I think generated some of the backlashes. For, for example, okay, in China, they might have some sort of their sort of notion of what is political correctness. Maybe Chinese officials, Chinese Communist Party officials, they should not support the Taiwan's some new aspirations or Hong Kong's democratic activists. That's their political. But Chinese government has no right to compel American public figure what should say, what should not say related to Hong Kong, right? So here, Chinese government just say, oh, their own officials should stick to some political discipline regarding what they should say or should not say over Hong Kong, regarding Hong Kong. 
that might be fine, at least in China. But if they say, oh, American public figures, American businessmen, American uh, politicians should not say uh, regarding Hong Kong or Taiwan, that's overstretching. That, that's, I think that's the, another example of how sort of domestic sort of practice put into international context that it generated backlash for China. Yeah, one of the things that I think you're describing is, for instance, the Confucian Institutes, uh-huh. where it's a great idea to be able uh-huh. to have an institute on college campuses that can teach about the Chinese language, that can teach the community about Chinese culture, very much in support of that. The The issue, of course, was always when they tried to pull weight when the university brought in a speaker that supported Tibetan independence or that mm-hmm. spoke in favor of Hong Kong, and they tried to force the hand of university presidents. So I agree with you entirely that that's wrong when they try to censor free speech within mm-hmm. other countries and other cultures. But mm-hmm. I, I'm in support of the concept of mm-hmm. introducing Chinese culture. Uh, in mm-hmm. fact, I was excited to see that there was a summer program mm-hmm. for kids um, mm-hmm. around my my children's age uh-huh. in Indianapolis that uh-huh. was apparently sponsored by a Confucian program. It had been shut down before I, I was able to take part. And I probably wouldn't have mm-hmm. after reading more about some of the, the mm-hmm. downsides of the Confucian programs, but the concept of it was something that I was very intrigued by because it was mm-hmm. going to teach kids Chinese language and mm-hmm. Chinese characters. And that's, uh-huh. that that's exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, my observation is that given the backlashes against the Confucius Institute in the United States and some Western countries, I think the Chinese government also now is rethinking the Confucius Institute. On the one hand, I think they, they try to reduce some of the political sort of collections, government affiliation with Confucius Institute. Originally, the, the headquarters is put under the direct affiliation of China's Ministry of Education, now they want to sort of is reestablished as sort of like a social organization. So sort of long profit organization. So I think they, they, they still also try to sort of, they, they, they understand some of the backlashes and they also try to sort of, because overall it's like, like some of the English teaching program, American culture promotion program overseas. I think all countries want to promote some of their culture and language. That's largely good. I think that's largely positive. So the real issue is how we sort of think about to conduct those kind of activities in, in a legitimate way that are respecting hosting countries' values and the practice. I think that's the I think that's the strategy. Maybe even the Chinese government is now rethinking and uh, hopefully maybe a rebranded version of Confucius Institute in the future will be more acceptable in in the future. You mentioned ways that China is able to give to other countries to help development. Mm -hmm. Two aspects I know of, one is the BRI that's very well publicized, although I'm not sure that everybody always understands exactly what the aims or the design of the BRI, but it's it's well known among people who talk about China. The other one, of course, there I believe that there's an East Asian oh, yeah, yeah, bank Asian that China. Development bank. Yeah. Those have also been mentioned in terms of sharp power, in terms of China trying to flex mm-hmm. its influence. Your answer just a second ago gave the 
indication that you're a little bit more supportive of those. Can you explain your feelings on those and maybe also how it relates back to signaling the, the concept okay, that good. in your book? So I argued that a rising power could signal higher status through various mechanisms. One is conspicuous consumption, just like a rich guy but purchasing a luxury home or luxury car to showcase their rising status. A rising power like China, building aircraft carrier, other uh, Beijing Olympic games. That's uh, my, my own book characterized as conspicuous consumption to showcase, oh, it's rising power. On the other hand, rising power could also showcase their status through provision of international public goods, contributing more to multilateral organizations. So I use AIIB as the prime, as one of the examples. So I think uh, in recent years, China is definitely moving in that direction. So especially in regional context in East Asia, China now is, is, is willing to play some sort of leadership or even co-leadership in East Asia. Uh, during Asian financial crisis in late 1990s, China contributed to solve the problem, contribute a lot of money and energy resources to solve the financial crisis. And Asian Infrastructure Bank, I think it's also in that kind of direction. So China play a leadership role in established this infrastructure bank as a way to showcase their emerging leadership in East Asia. Uh, and, and I think the BRI is a little, a little bit more complicated. Uh, I, I think because AIB is, is purely modern institutions following international practice Actually, they hire a lot of World Bank officials, international monetary fund uh, officials to work for AIIB. So it, it's, it's, a, it's well-respected, less controversial AIIB. But a BRI is more controversial internationally. Now scholars are still debating what is BRI. So some people talk about BRI as a geoeconomic strategy to try to export China's sort of uh, overcapacity and, and also try to expand China's influence through economic project. The other interpretation is that it's a geopolitical project, try to expand China's international geopolitical influence in the region or in, in the world. And the, the third interpretation is that BRI is still a project working in progress largely shaped by China's domestic bureaucratic politics, because a lot of institutions, it's just this kind of giant, big ideas Chinese leaders try to promote. But domestically, a lot of institutions try to sort of promote their own version of BRI. It's, it's messy. It's kind of like a radio project still work in progress to some degree, it also shaped by China's domestic politics. I don't have a definite answer, I think, but I own personal view is it's still largely a geoeconomic strategy, not a, not a geopolitical project, although the project will have some of the political implications. Xi Jinping, scholars have described him as bringing a shift in China's foreign policy. Uh, a lot of scholars believe Xi Jinping has ushered in a new era in terms of a lot of aspects of China, but especially in terms of international relations. Mm -hmm. Do you believe Xi Jinping has followed the traditional Chinese historical trajectory, or do you think he is somewhat of an aberration 
that maybe we'll go back to some other direction with China's next leader? I think there are different interpretations. Some suggest Xi Jinping's firm policy put China into sort of entirely different directions, totally abandoning the previous Deng Xiaoping's sort of low-profile guidance. But I think my own book and all my own personal analysis, I I argue that there's much continuity and and as well as change in Xi Jinping's foreign policy. So it's not entirely new. So number one, I think Xi Jinping's like uh, uh, his Chinese dream uh, slogan is much of the continuity of long-term Chinese history. All modern Chinese leaders wants to uh, make China great again. So I think to some degree, I mean, Xi Jinping's slogan is just a continuity of several generations of Chinese leaders. They want to make China great again. Their own differences among these gen- different generations of leaders is how great is enough, how to achieve a greatness. Their differences is sort of tactics, not the long-term goal. So to some degree, all Chinese leaders, are, they are to some degree nationalists, but in just the difference is in terms of different degree, right? So this is the first. Second, in terms of strategy, tactics, I think as China becomes a larger economy, China wants to improve its international status. China wants to play a more important role. That's not entirely new. Even Hu Jintao, Xi Jinping's predecessor, already pursued a lot of projects uh, that indicate China wants to play a more important role, uh, uh, play a larger role globally and regionally. So Xi Jinping just continued some of the uh, trajectory already started by some of his predecessors. So it's not like, oh, oh if China pursue more active, even uh, more assertive foreign policies, that's entirely new. And also the third dimension I want to emphasize, there's always a reassurance element in Chinese foreign policy as well. So I think Xi Jinping has not entirely abandoned the reassurance element. But overall, I also agree, Xi Jinping is more assertive is more nationalistic. Maybe Xi Jinping's foreign policy is more active globally and regionally. So there again, so we need to think about Xi Jinping's foreign policy both reflects both continuity and change in China's foreign policy as well as China's long-term trajectory. What struck me the most as I read your book was all of the parallels between the rise of the United States and the rise of China. I felt that the way you describe China as being both reluctant to take on an international role, but at the same time, because of its growing economy, taking on uh, a much bigger role and and in some ways looking to take on that bigger role. Mm. Uh, It reminds me of the United States at the turn of the 20th century, where the United States was becoming the dominant economic power, surpassing Great Britain, but was at the same time incredibly reluctant to take on those international obligations at times. Do you feel that there are a lot of similarities and parallels between the experience of the United States and the experience of China? Yeah, yeah, I think definitely. Uh, Actually, in in the academic uh, uh, studies, both historians and political scientists, international relations scholars, they examine some of the early period of the United States rise on the global stage. Definitely there are some similarities between United States in, in history and contemporary China. There's some sort of hesitations, 
to play a larger role, but sometimes ambivalent. Conventionally, people sometimes always think, oh, if a country becomes a larger economy, they, they think, oh, that there's a like a linear trajectory. They always want to maximize their power, maximize their their profile, maximize their international status. But the reality, both in the historical case of the United States and contemporary China, give us a more sort of sophisticated, nuanced story. Sometimes, because rising status, rising international profile, uh, will cause international backlash. Maybe also uh, because it will have more international burdens, more international responsibilities, and also maybe domestically, maybe political elites and the public. Are not well prepared for higher international profile. So we see some of the hesitations always. I think that's the some sort of interesting comparison between the United States in history and contemporary China. Definitely, there was a quote in your book that I stumbled upon and I had to write it down. You said, uh-huh. "Great power status is not free. It comes with global responsibilities and obligations." Uh-huh. That feels like the American experience throughout its history, where uh-huh. even today with Trump, it's wanting uh-huh. to it's it's asking itself how much of a role do we want to play internationally because uh-huh. it's not free, and uh-huh. the experience that China has right now as well. Exactly, exactly. I think some of the conventional wisdom always worry. Okay, if China wants to replace the United States, the global leaders, that will be bad. U.S.-China relationship is zero-sum game, right? So, but I argue that the re- the the reality is more complicated. Sometimes, for some issues, the United States wants China to play a larger role, like climate change,、uh, maybe other issues. I mean, wants China to play a larger role,、uh, share more burdens. But for other issues, the United States worry about China's sort of、uh, coming challenges to U.S. Uh, leading power, but、uh, on the other hand, China also worry about some of all the backlashes, rising costs internationally. So I I don't think uh, uh, even China's economy might become larger in the coming years or even decades. I don't see in the foreseeable future China has both capabilities and intentions to become a really a global dominant. Power at least in the in in the foreseeable future, because think about it, for America president, typical America president, their national security discussions sometimes more often about okay some issues in Middle East, some issues in Africa, or some crisis in Europe. Chinese leaders, I mean, their dominant national security. Discussion. Oh, some issue in Xinjiang, some issue in Hong Kong, or some issue in Taiwan. It's rare to for the Chinese leaders to think, oh, some Middle East crisis, Middle East crisis, Palestinian-Israel conflict is a top concern of a Chinese president. I don't think in the next decade that will be the scenario. I, in that sense, I think it, it's more complicated because rising power will have rising burdens and a rising responsibility. I think China is still very hesitating to take some of the. Rising international responsibilities. So, as as we've had our conversation, you've you've made a case that China is not as much of a threat as some scholars have argued. What I'd like to know 
from your perspective is does China want to be a partner of the United States or does it want to be more of an adversary or a rival? I'm not saying China is absolutely not a threat to the United States. But what I'm saying is that China posed more complicated challenges to the United States uh, than some of the conventional wisdom assumes. The, some of the conventional narrative over-exaggerate China's capabilities and intentions to replace the United States as a global leader. So, But China does pose some at least limited threat, especially in East Asia regarding American uh, national interest. Because if we think about international threat, a classical formula is international threat equals capabilities multiplied by intentions. So if, if we try to evaluate whether China is a threat or not, we really need to evaluate China's capabilities and China's intentions. Unfortunately, both questions are very complicated. So I think there should there are many discussions, debates about either China's long-term capabilities, China's long-term intentions. I don't think there are definite answers yet. My own book is just try to make some contribution. Wait a minute. The, the conventional wisdom talk about, oh, China has both intentions, capabilities to really challenge American leadership. But my book and research try to say, oh, it, the, the, the story is much more complicated, maybe more nuanced. Uh, so get back to what's China's intention. I think maybe China also a bit, a bit ambivalent. Uh, to some degree, I think uh, both China and the United States see each other as some sort of threat. This is not necessary because China or U.S. see each other as a really extremely bad actor. It's not necessary. It's, it's simply because of int- capabilities. The United States is a leading power. It's such a powerful country. It's natural for Chinese leaders to worry about the United States. I think China is a rising power with very different political systems. It's natural for American leaders to worry about China. But on the other hand, for so many issues, the United States and China also need to cooperate regarding climate change, global trade, global sort of, uh, even now, global public health. So there are so many issues the United States and China need to cooperate. I think the more realistic evaluation is that the United States, China, they are long-term sort of competitors, definitely, but also they need to be partners whenever needed. And whenever possible as well. So let me describe it this way. Does China value its relationship with the United States beyond a simple economic um, transactional trade relationship? Definitely. I think this is uh, not just, I I think conventionally we only think about US-China relations as like two countries, two nation states, two countries relationship. But after four decades of diplomatic relationship, there are expanding not only economic ties, but the social, social, educational, cultural ties between these two countries. Chinese people love to love American movies. A lot of American brands, American companies, they make big money in China still. So think about it. The United States of America in Chinese language called Meiguo. The, the, the Chinese language called Meiguo literally translated as beautiful country. 
So in, in a sense that for, for, for many, many decades in Chinese society, the United States is a beautiful country. So that's kind of indicate there are still strong sort of social, sort of, uh, sort of like a positive image, American society, American people. The Chinese people see America, America as a beautiful country. I think that's kind of positive image is still there. Unfortunately, I think in recent four years, because of the deteriorating diplomatic relationship, rising sort of negative narratives that damage this kind of positive image to some degree. But I would expect in, in the long term, I'm not very optimistic about like a short term political relationship between the two countries, but in the long term, I was hoping that this kind of strong, positive social connections, educational connections might still be there in the years to come. Thank you yet again, uh, Zhao Yupu, for uh, joining me. Uh, My the, yeah, your book, uh, Rebranding China, is it's it's actually really short, but it's really insightful. Uh-huh. It's it's okay. a good read. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Democracy Paradox is possible because of the support of many people and institutions. I want to thank Stanford University Press for a copy of Rebranding China. I want to thank Apes of the State for allowing me to use their music. You can find them on Spotify or their Bandcamp page. As always, I would not be able to produce these podcasts without the support of my wife, Julie, and the good behavior of my kids. The home of the Democracy Paradox podcast is at www.com democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.